0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to Part 2 of CT Evaluation of GI Bleeding. And we were speaking about the fact that one of the really nice things about CT is it's more sensitive for for detecting blood at 0.3 than classic DSA, which is 0.5 ml. Now, in terms of lower GI bleeding, we said that this accounts for about 24% of cases of GI hemorrhage, though it does seem to be the ones that were referred. Obviously, there's a bias because almost every case I see and I pick up a positive study, it's lower GI bleeding. We do see a lot of cases of upper GI bleeding and I've showed you some examples. Most of the time it's patients with cirrhosis, occasionally it's patients with ulcer disease. So I think we can do well on both, but obviously we do a whole lot better with lower GI bleeding. Now, when we talk about the disease spectrum, we talk about things from chronic to intermittent blood loss, to severe acute hemorrhage, and mortality is relatively low, but still 5% is not low, but can be as high as 23%, depending on age, comorbidities, and the severity of the hemorrhage. So let's look at some of the things. Small bowel angiodysplasia is the most common cause of small bowel bleeding. It's associated with end-stage renal disease and aortic stenosis, but it does occur in other situations as well. It's more common in the proximal small bowel but can occur anywhere in the small bowel. Tough like hypervascular enhancing foci less than five millimeters is seen. Seen best arterial and fade on delayed phase imaging. Usually it's multifocal and it's typically composed of abnormally dilated thin vessels. So what do we see? Now, it's easy to miss. When you look at this case in the duodenum, when you look hard and I circled it, you see several high-density regions. Those are the zones of angiodysplasia. But you can see it's easy to walk by. If you look at the coronal view, it's in fact easier to see. You see the multiple high-density zones in what looks like a thickened loop of small bowel. But again, it's somewhat subtle, but Coronal views make it a bit easier to see, and you can see several more little vascular tufts a bit downstream. But look what happens when you go to MIP. Look how many more bright dots you see, and look how much more obvious things are. And this is a very good point. When I'm looking for GI bleeding, I do a lot of the scrolling with MIP because things that are bleeding, whether it's upper or lower GI bleeding, are bright, and bright things really are accentuated by MIP. And this MIP shows very nicely. As you can see, I have the circle there. And if I take the same loop of bow, show it to you with MIP, and show it to you with simple coronal, what becomes very obvious on the MIP is very subtle on the plain coronal images. Now, you need to look very carefully when you look at images. Now, I mentioned before that we do arterial and venous, and most of the time, there's a change between the two phases, or there is always a change, but most of the time, the blush is greater on the venous phase. So here's a good example, arterial phase imaging, look at the mid-small bowel, in this patient with a complex history, ILD, polymyositis, you see that bright structure within the bowel. It almost looks like contrast. And then you look at it again as you go from arterial to venous, and you can see it's increased. That's active bleeding. There's no doubt about it. There's no mistake. You're not going to confuse it with anything else. Here it is on the coronal view. Very nice blush. Vessels fed off the SMA. You can see it again as you go to the MIP imaging. Okay, so angiodysplasia, vascular bleeding are things we think about. Now we also can think about small bowel cancer. It's not uncommon for us to pick up small bowel tumors as the original source of GI bleeding. Small bowel cancers are rare, it's an older population, but not much different than diverticular disease, but it may be the presentation. And yes, there's a range of presentations for small bowel tumors, but GI bleeding is up there. One of the challenges, of course, we talk about how it's six to 18 months from presentation to diagnosis of small bowel tumors. And if you have GI bleeding, perhaps we're a little bit better picking it up because we're more aggressive in our evaluation. So when you talk about tumors, one of the common tumors we see that bleeds is a gist tumor. Most gist tumors are in the stomach, but they could be anywhere in the GI tract from esophagus to anal region they do occur not uncommonly in the jejunum and ileum, and these often enhance, and we've picked up many cases of incidental gist tumors because of the GI bleeding. Clinical presentations, asymptomatic, bleeding can take the form of slow intraluminal GI bleeding or massive intraperitoneal bleeding because sometimes these lesions rupture. Remember that gist tumors are typically exophytic Here's a nice example of a patient with GI bleeding where we see a very bright lesion in the patient's jejunum. Yes, I could consider a carcinoid tumor. Yes, I could consider metastatic renal cell carcinoma in the patient who has a history of renal cell carcinoma. But you've got to think of gist with these tumors. Gist versus carcinoid. Carcinoids often has desmoplastic reaction or a secondary mass. These may only be isolated findings. Just a very nice example showing you that mass and how it's actively bleeding. And if you looked at it in different projections, as in this case, you can see the exophytic nature. Carcinoid tumors are intraluminal. Uh, just can't be intraluminal, but most gists, that's true of stomach and small bowel, have a large exophytic component and it's much easier to recognize them in that case. And again, the blush is very classic. We talk again about GIST tumors, and there have been several articles recently about the importance of their presentation with GI bleeding. This article by Scola makes the point that patients may present with GI bleeding, which may be occult, or even be frank hemorrhage. Tumors can rupture, causing intraperitoneal bleeding. So one of the hallmarks of GIST tumors with different presentations is going to be the the bleeding. Now, it's interesting, one of the challenges with capsule is when lesions are exophytic, you may not see them. This patient had GI bleeding and the capsule study was negative, but look at this enhancing lesion. It's in the wall of the bowel, and this was an enhancing leiomyoma. Basically, essentially a gist tumor. Look how large it is. Look where it is, but that was negative on capsule endoscopy. Beautifully shown on the 3D imaging here, internal iliacs, and really nicely shown there as well. You see the vascularity. This is cinematic rendering, of course. You see the tumor, you see its vascularity, and you see its position and extent. Now, I've mentioned vascular tumors in small bowel. Always think about metastasis, like from renal cell carcinoma. Here's a vascular lesion in the patient's ilium. You can see it. It's subtle on axial and coronal. If I circle it, it's less subtle. Now you could say this could be a GIST tumor. It could be a carcinoid tumor, but this patient's had a nephrectomy. This is about 10 or 12 years later, which is not an uncommon timing. And this was a patient with a GI bleed secondary to metastatic renal cell carcinoma to the small bowel. Just a very, very nice example. And I wanted to show you, if you get delayed phase, you can, knowing where the lesion is, you can see it, but you can see how easy it is to miss. And this patient has lots of fluid in the bowel. So you really need to be careful whether it's evaluating patients at presentation, whether it's evaluating them years later with renal cell carcinoma, look carefully at the small bowel, and in a patient who has renal cell carcinoma, or who had renal cell carcinoma, you better be looking carefully at the bowel. Now I mentioned also another cause of GI bleeding is inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's in the small bowel. Beautiful example here of the comb sign of the terminal ileum uh, and the uh, ileocolic vessels. And then also the prominent enhancement of the patient's small bowel, really nicely seen, active Crohn's disease, beautiful vasorecta, beautiful comb sign, and again, very nicely shown on the cinematic with a thickened loop of bowel, the prominent vessels in the right lower quadrant. And here it is again, all of these are shown nicely. I did put a bunch of cinematic renderings in here. I want to give you a feel of what we're looking at with cinematic rendering, trying to pick up tumors earlier, trying to look at vascular mapping better. So we are trying to figure out how this is gonna impact what we do, but just a really nice example of the comb sign and the disease small bowel in a patient with uh, Crohn's disease, the cinematic rendering and cinematic rendering back to MIP, very nicely shown here. The the mucosal and submucosal enhancement of the disease small bowel is clearly seen. Let's then move into the colon proper. When you talk about bleeding in the colon, we talk about inflammatory disease and ischemic disease. We talk about cancer like colon cancer and complications from radiation therapy or complications from trauma. We talk about angiodysplasia. We spoke about that in the small bowel. It occurs for 6% of lower GI bleeding. Again, these abnormal venules, it's more common in an older patient, it's more common in large bowel in the patient's right colon. Colonoscopy is not sensitive for this diagnosis, but CT is very sensitive if you're careful. You do need sliding MIP images and you need to look very carefully for the little tufts that stand out, particularly on the MIP imaging. So here's a nice example. Look at the patient's right colon. I have to admit it's very easy to walk by. If you look at the right colon compared to the left, you say it's enhancing a bit more, but so what? Does that bother you? Well, if you take those images and now you look at them in MIP, look at the vascularity in the wall of the patient's cecum and right colon. That's classic angiodysplasia, just a beautiful blush, prominent vessels, just a beautiful visualization. Again, this makes the point that looking at the axials, you're limited. Looking at coronals, you still have limitations. Within the volume, things are particularly nicely seen on this MIP and volume rendered set of images. Again, very, very important to look carefully at that. What else? The most frequent complication of diverticular disease is diverticulitis, and the second most common is hemorrhage. Diverticular disease is in an older population, is one of the complications is bleeding, and so we're gonna see a lot more of these patients. You could, um, uh, hemorrhage secondary to diverticular disease is the second most common cause of bleeding in the lower GI tract, but is the main cause of bleeding in up to 50% of cases. It's estimated that up to 15% of patients with diverticular disease will bleed at some point during their lifetime. But bleeding is usually painless and in up to one-third of the cases, massive uh, support and hospitalization and transfusion will be required. The majority of patients, however, will not have a second bleed. It's estimated that up to 15% of patients with diverticular disease will bleed at some point, as I mentioned. Bleeding is usually painless and large. One third of cases. So it's important to recognize this. This article by Blancos Valencia, the natural history of colonic diverticulae hemorrhage indicates that it stops spontaneously in up to 80% of cases. So treatment should be directed to support management. In twenty to thirty percent of cases, specific medical treatment though through endoscopic management with epinephrine injection, thermal mechanical methods such as clipping or ligature, and in very few cases a radiological surgical treatment will be necessary. So again, we recognize that in most cases patients are managed conservatively, but not every single case. I mentioned before also once the initial bleeding occurs with diverticular disease, most patients will not recur and only 30% will present with a second bleeding episode, which kind of makes it the question, if you have suspected or known diverticular bleeding, should you wait for the second episode, or should you evaluate the patient earlier? That's a good question. So let's look at some examples. You can see on this set of images, look at the patient's left colon, fluid in the bowel, but you can see the bright structure, right? You see that bright thing? And you see as you go from arterial to venous, And you could say, well, maybe it's just some foreign matter, but it's changing. And look how it changes from arterial to venous here. Massive change. That's classic for active bleeding. Here it is beautifully seen, right? Image on your left is going to be arterial. Image on your right is going to be venous. And you can see the rapid change. This is why, as I mentioned on the first lecture, we like to do dual phase. Yes, I could see it in both phases, but I know it's active bleeding, and angiography would typically be positive. Doing non-contrast is just not something we think of. Another example, diverticular disease, patient with abdominal pain, you can see the diverticulum off the lateral aspect of the mid-descending, thoracic, uh, mid-descending colon, very, very nicely shown, nicely on the volume rendering, and nicely on the coronal, and nicely on the MIP imaging. And you can see it changes between arterial and venous. It does tend to increase. There it is on the 62nd. You can see that the bleeding is increasing, the blushes more, and so it's a really good way of thinking about how to optimize your detection, arterial and venous, and the venous also will predict what patients need to have intervention and which patients can be managed conservatively. That is indeed important. And here's the coronal view showing you that active bleed. And you can see it's much more impressive than on the original studies, okay? So being able to find bleeding, and here's just another example of that, same case. The active bleeds are best seen on the patient's um, later phase, venous phase, imaging 30 seconds after the arterial phase, or less than 30 seconds in some cases. But again, you can see the problem if you're only doing one phase. You may miss things, misinterpret things, or not really know how to judge things. And here's just another patient same case, venous phase. You see the blush. You see the bleeding on the uh, MIP imaging. And again, MIP and VRT, both are good. As I mentioned, MIP can be more valuable in just the finding the bleed, the volume rendering more in the detail of things. Here's another set of images. So it's really something that you need to think about. Now, when we talk about bleeding, it does not necessarily need to be only one site. This patient has a good example of bleeding in two sites, sigmoid colon and transverse colon. But let's take a five-minute break and come back and do it. And finish up his talk. Thanks a lot. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website ctss.com for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.